Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hey, a couple new postings. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. There is a piece out today on Politico. Um, and let me just put it like this. It is it is brutal about Governor Tony Evers. And I, I sent out a link to this. Again, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. The headline is Dam Dems. Fear Wisconsin governor is becoming a liability for Biden. Tony Evers subheadline Tony Evers performance, especially his response to the Kenosha riots, is diminishing what should be a significant edge for the party. So, in other words, it's talking about how you have a, uh, at least in some circles, a very unpopular president. And you have Tony Evers, who, and I understand he's been the benefit of beneficiary of, of some sort of inflated approval ratings. Those are starting to decline, coming down to earth. And my guess is they're, they're going to get worse before they get better. Um, his response in Kenosha, especially his position that I wouldn't have changed a thing. $50 million in damages, $30 billion destroyed, 30, 30 businesses destroyed. I wouldn't have done anything differently. Well, I think that that might come back to haunt him in any event. If you want to check it out, it's in political today, but I have a list linked to it on uh, Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. You can check that out. In addition, there's another, and I think it's a very provocative piece. We're going to talk about it at the 1 o'clock hour of the program today. It's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today called How to Live with COVID, Not for It. And it, it talks about moving forward if we accept the notion that COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. What what do we need to, to do? Now, the initial response in March across the world was, we're going to shut the world down, and we're going to cripple economies, and we're going to unemploy millions of people, and, and that's how we're going to deal with it. And the perspective that the peace offers is that you, you can't do that. It's just not practical, especially now, given the fact that you're seeing new explosions of COVID-19 and we're coming up on the the cold and flu season, which means there's probably more people than ever. They're going to get sick. It's got a really interesting take on it, at least one that I think has a lot of merit to it. We'll talk about it at the one o'clock hour of the program. But if you want a head start on it, again, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And it's an opinion piece in today's Wall Street Journal. OK, let's let's get started. I cautioned about this when it was first announced, and it's starting to come true. During the the initial response to the pandemic, the state government and the federal government moved in and said, okay, here's the deal. We are not going to allow landlords to evict tenants based on their failure to pay rent. We don't want people being thrown out on the streets in an era of a spread of COVID-19. And we've got to understand that even though we're, we're giving enhanced unemployment benefits to people who might have got lost their jobs, even though, you know, every American gets a check for, tw- or many Americans get a check for $1,200 in the mail, even though you get all that, we, we don't expect people to have to pay their rents. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stop landlords from being able to evict okay early earlier um this month 
President Trump, came out and said, well, here, here's what we're going to do. We are going to continue this program. And so between early September and the end of the year, we are going to, by law, tell landlords that they can no longer evict people, including people who might not have been paying their rent for the last several months. So you could now have tenants who are, I don't know, not paying their rent, and it can go six, seven, eight, nine months. So now you can't recommence eviction proceedings until the first of the year. That sounds really, really good. Oh, well, that, that's a humane thing. People shouldn't have to be forced uh, into deciding, you know, whether they're going to pay their rent or pay other sort of stuff. There is a problem with that, though. And the problem is for the landlords, because when you are a landlord, it is an investment that you have made. You could take your money and you can buy, you know, uh, T-bills. You can buy CDs. You can invest in the stock market. As a landlord, you have decided to invest in real estate. And so uh, that's what a lot of people do. They say, look, all right, we want to invest in real estate. We want to provide housing for people. But at the same time, we're not doing this necessarily out of the goodness of our hearts. We think it is a good investment. We want to make money on that. And we need to make some money on it because in most cases, the landlords, the people that own the buildings, they have mortgages on those buildings that they have to pay to the bank. You know, every month they've got to write a check. And in many cases, for example, let's say you live in a place where the utilities are included in your rent. Well, the landlords, they've got to, they've got to pay We Energies. They've got to pay the utility company. They've got to pay the water bill. They have to pay the bank again on their mortgage payments. So what happens if you own four or five, let's say six multifamily buildings? Okay. You're, you're not some huge corporation, but you're somebody, you know, trying to make a little bit of a living and you depend on that rental income in order to make your payments. You depend on that rental income to pay the utility bills and the property. All right, you've got your property tax bills that are going to be coming up um, as well. So what happens if nobody's paying rent? Well, it's real easy. You don't have the money to make your payments either. And that is starting to play out. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this, this is an initiative you know, created essentially by the CDC that says, okay, we're going to use the, the national pandemic. We're going to use this as an excuse to get into the private sector and say that we are not going to allow landlords to evict people who are not paying. So as a result, if you're a landlord, it is entirely possible that you will be carrying people for seven, eight months. Who knows how long? Because even once you start the eviction process, it's going to take months to do that. Meanwhile, you've got no income coming in. Essentially, you are providing free housing for people. Now, the rent doesn't go away. You know, people, you know, end up with, they end up in arrears. But what, what's, let's face this, what's going to happen? You know, somebody who hasn't paid rent for seven months, eight months, a year, they're, they're not, you, you can charge them late payments. You can say, hey, you still owe me, you know, for the, if the rent is 1200 bucks a month, you know, you haven't paid for 10 months. Hey, you know, you owe me $12,000. But let's face it. 
once that happens, the person is moving out anyways. They're not going to pay that back rent. They're simply going to bail, leaving the landlord in the lurch. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is well-intentioned. But I think this is killing and will kill the housing industry. Landlords have to be able to move people out if they don't pay their rent. And they have to be able to get people who can pay that rent into the properties, don't they? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you are, if you're somebody in this situation, if you're a landlord who's now faced with the prospect of month after month after month of not being able to collect rents, how, how is that affecting you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank is Miller Mobility for in and around home safety solutions. Go to MillerMobility.com. More about them a little bit later. Okay, and, and here's here's the sort of rubbing salt in the wound about this no eviction order. All right, in, in order to qualify, you have to, if you're the tenant, you have to say, I have used best efforts to obtain all government assistance. I expect to earn no more than $99,000 in income. I have substantial loss of house in, of household income, and I have tried to make timely partial payments. So you have to file a declaration. However, however, there's nobody that checks whether that declaration is accurate. The only question that judges look at is whether or not it's been filed with the landlord. If the landlord has had it, if the tenant gives it to the landlord, the landlord can't go and say, hey, this is BS. I mean, I, I, don't, I think this person has every ability to pay. They're just choosing not to. Judges aren't looking at that. Judges don't care about it. The only question is not whether the form is accurate, not whether it's true, just have you given them the form? What is this going to do to the rental housing market? moving forward, how are you going to get people to be willing to invest their money in buying apartment buildings, building apartment buildings, whatever, if the government is going to come in and say, okay, we've decided we're not going to allow you to collect rent from people? Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, well, I feel bad for the people who can't pay rent tonight. It's a real problem, and it's a humane thing to keep them in housing. However, uh, these landlords are probably not going to get money from these uh, renters after a while. They got to pay utility bills and property taxes, and they're going to end up get, getting uh, bad credit ratings and loan defaults, which yeah. is going to domino into the bank. Banks are going to, uh, you know, have bank loans default on them, yeah. and it's just going to be a huge, huge uh, domino effect that many people don't really realize how bad it could get. Well, well exactly. I don't have a solution. Well, I mean, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I, I think I mean I my I w- I have a solution, which is you you have to let the marketplace work out. Because okay, what what about people? I don't know who are now looking for rental units who have the ability to pay. Well, they're not going to be able to rent apartments because the people that aren't paying are are staying in them. To your point, you know you. You, you say to the, the landlord, you say to the building owner, and I understand some people want to think about these buildings as being owned by giant, you know, corporations, so they lose a little bit of money. Who cares? Well, many, many, many of the landlords, again, it's it's average folks who you, you've got that you've got that four family or maybe you've got a couple four families and you're doing it as investment. Well, you've still got to pay the utility bills. You're still going to be on the hook for maintaining the building. You know, all of a sudden, hey, the toilets break down or a water pipe 
bursts or something, you're going to be the one that's got to hire the plumber to go out and fix that. So the expenses keep coming in, but the government is telling you, all right, you're, you're not going to be able to collect your rent, and you're not going to be able to, I don't know, look at the different tenants and say, well, the tenant's making their car payment. The tenant's got the cable TV. The tenant is in a situation where they're, you know, they've got their cell phone payments and they've got their internet connection. They're making all these other payments, but they're not paying me and I can't do anything to move them on. That's just, it's fundamentally it's fundamentally wrong, and it's going to have a large effect. And you're right, Mike, it's going to have an effect on the economy when the banks start taking action and when the landlords don't have the money to pay the property taxes and the buildings fall into foreclosure. But it's also going to have an effect moving forward when people have to make that decision. Okay, I've got some money, and I'm looking to invest it. I, I kind of like the idea of real estate. Maybe I should be an apartment owner. Well, all right. But here's the problem. Gee, next time we have this health situation, I might have the government come in and tell me I, I can't collect my rents. Who in their right mind is going to make that investment? That's part of the effect as well. Let's talk to Katie in Burlington. You're on WTMJ. Hi there. Um, I just have noticed, um, linking this, a lot of conversations on Facebook in regards to housing or, or rummage groups where people are looking for housing and people are saying it's absolutely impossible to find. I think an unintended consequence is landlords don't want to rent. They're like, why bother having a tenant come in, have the wear and tear and the, the headache when I can't even collect a rent? Yeah. Um, so I think they're not thinking about that. They're trying to protect people already in housing. But for all everyone out there looking for affordable housing, they're leaving them high and dry. They simply cannot find it because landlords, who would want to rent and invest that money, time, and headache yeah. and not be able to collect rent? Right. Oh, exactly. And move. And to my point, you're you're right. And then to my point, moving forward, you know, who who wants to buy that property? See that that's the other effect of this. I mean, you know, okay. So again, I'm thinking of. I'm trying to look for ways to diversify more my portfolio. You know, maybe I want to buy a couple of those four families. And I understand there's a little bit of a headache because you got to find tenants and you've got to maintain the buildings and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's a good investment. Well, okay. You you want to talk about just completely and totally killing the resale market uh, and, and killing the market in general, say the government's going to come in and tell you you cannot collect rent, but still you're going to be on the hook for this. Here's a couple texts. Jeff, I wish I could do that with my car payment. Yeah, I mean, you, you wonder, why are we singling out rent? I mean, aren't cars necessities? I mean, why are we saying that you could still repossess cars? All right, so you got to make your car payment, and so that's what's going to happen. But again, how, how do people think this is going to all turn out? That That's one of the bigger pictures. Let's, let's again say that you've gone seven, eight, nine months without paying rent, which is what's going to now be possible. And then, so their landlord, January 1st rolls around, they resume or start the eviction proceedings. It takes a couple months to get it through the court. So now you've been living in a place for, I don't know, a year without paying rent. The landlord... The landlord, yeah, they're able to charge you late fees, but you're not paying the rent in the first place. You're not going to pay those fees. You're you're, you're going to leave. You're, okay, you owe, gee, I owe twelve thousand dollars in you know back rent. I, I'm not going to pay that. I'm just going to go try to find someplace else to live. Well, good luck with that. Number one, and number two, the landlord ends up getting you know holding the bag. All the while, they've still got to figure out a way to make their monthly mortgage payments and pay the electricity and, like I say, pay for the improvement. 
improvements that they have. Jeff, I am a landlord, and fortunately, my tenants continue to pay rent. However, in addition to the mortgage payment, I have property taxes, insurance, general maintenance upkeep, and repairs. Since the government thinks it's a good idea for renters not to need to pay rent, why don't they suspend our property tax bill on these properties? Well, fair question. Plus, here's here's the other point. For, for people who are renting in, I would say, the higher-end sort of apartments, my guess is they're not taking advantage of this. My guess is most of those people are continuing to make their rent payments. I would imagine that the majority, the majority of the people who are, are falling six months and eight months and nine months and a year in arrears on this stuff, I would imagine the majority of them are probably people living in some of the lower income housing things. So, okay, what, what's going to happen when, you know, the landlords in those types of properties aren't able to collect their rents to the point that Katie was making. Are they going to be in a hurry to go out and try to re-rent the properties? Are they going to be looking to sell? What's going to happen here? And again, I understand this is well-intentioned. On top of that, in my mind, this should not be something done by a government agency. This shouldn't be something done by the CDC. If Congress decides that it wants to do something like this and change the laws, etc., that might be a different story. But what you have now is essentially, I think you could describe it as state-sanctioned theft. Matter of fact, there's an article in National Review that that's what it calls it, state-sanctioned theft. The state, in this case, it's the federal government, telling a private property owner, you can't collect rent. You have to provide this service for free. But by this way, same token, we want you to pay your taxes. Go figure. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Do you own a local business? Know somebody who does? One small business could win a $50,000 advertising campaign. That's right. News Radio 620 WTMJ is teaming up with Associated Bank to help local businesses grow and succeed through these challenging times. To nominate a company or group, go to rebuildingwibusiness.com by September 27th. One deserving business will walk away with an ad campaign valued at $50,000. Let me go off script for a minute here. I, I, I understand that the businesses or small business owners might hear that and think what what exactly is that is this is this some sort of like clever marketing scheme or effort to sell timeshares or something that TMJ and Associated Bank have cooked up with no that this that this is it is something that was put together with uh, the folks at WTMJ and Associated Bank and it, it is what it is it is a contest nominate a small business one small business will be chosen no strings attached i mean all the rules are up on the website and you get a fifty thousand dollar advertising campaign that it is what it is this isn't something a smokescreen for something else it, it's it is a contest and the winner gets a fifty thousand dollar advertising campaign time is running out september 27th is the deadline to submit the applications you can go to the website it's rebuilding wibusiness.com they've got all the rules they've got all the entry details Associated Bank is a member of the FDIC. It's really something, if you've got a small business, you should check it out. There's really nothing to lose. Hey, before we move away from the subject of the, the moratorium on evictions, a breaking news story, and again, this is one, I, I've talked about this a couple times, it's in the same vein, and, and my head is about to explode on this one. If you are a, if you are a utility payer, if you, you know, if you have 
electricity or gas at your house, you have just been shafted big time by the Public Service Commission. Let me explain. In Wisconsin, under the law, there is a moratorium on shutting off electricity and gas, utilities, for people from November until April. All right, so what what happens is people who don't pay their utilities and and you don't there doesn't have to be any showing of a failure or lack of money or whatever you you can be a deadbeat and if you just decide that hey I'm I'm not going to pay your utilities cannot be shut off and that starts on November 1st you can pay your car payments you can buy the big screen TVs you can make the phone payments but you know, you, you and you know, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff, but you know your gas and your electric isn't going to be shut off. Now, the reason we say this, we do this because, well, we want to be compassionate. We don't want to be having people have their heat shut off in the winter. Okay, fine. So in April every year, what happens is the moratorium ends, and then the utilities go about the process of of disconnecting people. Now, before they do that, they reach out to the people who haven't paid and they try to work out some payment plan because the utilities want to get their money. At, at the end of the day, they, they want their money. They don't want to have to turn off the gas or electric. But what happens is there's always people who make the decision not to pay and there's some people out there who are just flat out scammers and know how to play the system. Okay, it's going to get shut off here. I'm going to move or whatever and then I'll sign up for the utilities under a different name or I'll have somebody else sign up for the name, etc. Et cetera, et cetera. So the moratorium went into effect last November. This would be November of 2019. Under normal circumstances, it would have expired in April of this year. In March, the Public Service Commission, there's two Democrats, there's one Republican on it, they voted to extend the moratorium. In other words, because COVID's going on, and even though people are getting the extra money for the unemployment compensation, and even though everybody got the the $1,200, or most people got that $1,200 from the government, we are going to continue the the moratorium. And um, so we're not going to allow utilities to be shut off because it's a time of crisis. That was extended again until October 1st. So up until today, what would have been possible is you could have had somebody who, starting in November, didn't pay their utilities, and now the electric company, the gas company, could not have shut them off until October 1st, right? Well, the Public Service Commission announced today, again by a two-to-one vote, that the moratorium was going to be extended through next April, through next April. So in other words, you're not going to, if you haven't paid for, let's say October 1st rolls around in a couple weeks, they can't shut you off. And then the normal moratorium goes into effect in November. So you will be looking at people who will have gone, what, over a year and a half without having to make one dime in utility payments not one dime in utility payments. And you don't, by the way, have to show that you can't afford them. There's no showing that is required. It's just, I don't feel like paying. Meaning that if you're somebody that's making the utility payments and you you do this and you keep yourself, you keep your payments up, it's almost like you're a chump because there's other people who aren't. Right now, the estimate I'm looking at is they estimate that um, there are about... I think the number I see saw last is 54,000 
households eligible for disconnection as of September 10th. 54,000. And that number is now going to increase because there's no incentive. The utility companies can't require people. Their big requirement, the the big hook is, hey, if you don't pay, we're going to shut off the gas. We're going to shut off the electric. They cannot do that now until April of next year. Now, let's look at this as a practical matter. Let us assume that you are one of those households who has not made a dime, has not paid anything on your utility bill, hasn't worked out a payment plan since last November. All right, it's now been, what, about 11 months, and this is going to continue for another six or seven months. You're going to be a year and a half in arrears, okay? As a practical matter, what do you think the utility company's chances are of collecting a dime once people are, are 18 months behind? So let's say your typical utility bill is... I don't know, $200 a month, 18 months in arrear. You you do the math. Who's going to be able to come up with that kind of money? You know this is going to be a default, and you know what's going to happen is as soon as the moratorium expires, the utility companies are going to have no choice but to go ahead and, and disconnect, and then the people are going to end up moving. That That's, that's, that's just it. They're, the utility company's not going to get a dime, and what happens is all the rest of us, we're going to have to pay for that. Now, look, I, I think there are things that you could do. But first of all, you know, to just put a blanket ban on turning off the electricity, I think, is ridiculous. If people can come in and can make a showing that they genuinely don't have that, that money, okay, maybe that, that's one thing. But they're not required to do that now. It's simply, okay, don't pay. We're not going to require, we're not going to require you to show anything. And yes, I'm sure there's some people who are legitimately caught up in this. And let's face it, there are other people who are deadbeats who are scamming the system. And the bottom line is, it's a recipe for disaster. They're not going to collect much money at all on this. And the rest of us are going to start to have to pay. Two to one decision. Again, it's one of those things where, gee, we're being compassionate because we don't want people to, I don't know, have the electricity turned off. Well, okay, I understand where that's coming from. But maybe before we say we're going to stick it to all the rest of the rent of the of the payers before we decide to stick it to them you know maybe we should require a showing who exactly are these people and why is it that they're choosing not to pay their utility bills is it because they don't have the wherewithal to do it or is it because they're simply choosing not to because they know there's no consequences so as a result of the public services commission's two to one vote today some people will have been able to go eight months without making utility payments and still continuing to get that service. Go figure. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The votes are in. Now it's time to find out the winners. The Wisconsin Sports Awards are coming, and they'll be unlike any WSAs before. Tune in September 28th as we broadcast the Wisconsin Sports Awards right here on 620 WTMJ. The ninth annual Wisconsin Sports Awards are presented by Gruber Law Offices, Cousin Subs, Potosi Brewing Company, and American Family Insurance. It all happens Monday, September 28th at 6 o'clock on WTMJ. Here's a text, Jeff. They will never be able to pay that bill in April unless they get an enormous tax refund. Well, that you know that that's right. If if you've haven't paid your utility bills in 18 months and now that's what the Public Services Commission has done. They they've said essentially you can't you cannot 
turn off people's electricity or gas. It's going to be 18 months for non-payment. You don't have to have called them. You don't have to make any payment plans at all. You, you don't have to pay, I don't know, 20% of the bill or 30% of the bill. You don't have to do any of that stuff, but yet you cannot be disconnected. So the texture is absolutely right. What do we think is going to happen next April for people, and there's over 54,000 people right now who are sufficiently in arrears that they could be disconnected. What do you think is going to happen when next April rolls around? Well, and then you say, okay, well, you owe $3,600, let's say 200 bucks a month over 18 months. <laughs> They're going to say, yeah, right, go ahead, turn it off. I'm going to bail on the property and I'm, I'm moving out or whatever. I'll find another place and we'll sign up for gas and electric under somebody else's name and we'll do the whole thing uh, again. Um, let's see, Jeff, we own some properties in Grafton. The village of Grafton Water has a single, uh, has a similar thing. Obviously, you can't disconnect it. However, any unpaid balances go on our tax roll. I have a tenant who hasn't paid rent since March, owes at least $500 for a water bill, which I'm going to get stuck with. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. Jeff, can you start service um, Saturday and suddenly in a new place with an outstanding bill? Well, yes and no. You you can't under your name. So if it's Jeff Wagner that's gone 18 months and and hasn't made a payment, yeah, they're probably not going to do it. But that's why... What happens is people say, okay, well, we're going to open this in my brother's account or in my wife's account or, you know, what, whatever. There's ways that people have of scamming the system so that, yeah, okay, I, I haven't paid under my name, but now we'll start the service in somebody else's name, and then we'll be able to get it. We'll run the same sort of, again, situation for, you know, however long we do it. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I understand the whole compassionate idea. Let's not shut off utilities. But is it too much to require, first of all, people to show that they have a genuine hardship? And secondly, shouldn't they be required to at least do something on on this? I mean, okay, maybe you can't pay the full, in my example, $200 a month, but maybe you could pay $100 a month. And shouldn't you be required to do that instead of just, well, we're not going to make you pay and let's make this whole thing work? Just asking. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, least surprising story of the day, right? Minneapolis. And of course, Minneapolis is the was sort of ground center for the, the start of the social justice movement, you know, following the death of, of George Floyd. OK, Minneapolis has also been one of those areas where you, you've had a lot of the elected officials, members of the Common Council, the mayor, etc., who were all in front of this. Let, let's the cops are evil. Let's defund the police. And again, I'm not defending, you know, what happened with George Floyd. I, I think, you know, particularly with regard to that one officer's response, I think almost anybody would realize or would agree that that was that was a criminal act. I believe that to be the case. But, all right, the reaction was, okay, all the cops are bad. We hate the police. The police need to be defunded, et cetera, et cetera. So there's been this push in Minneapolis. Let's defund the police. Let's cut down the staffing. Let's get rid of them. They're all bad. We don't want to cooperate. All right, so two months after the effort to defund the police, well, just yesterday, Minneapolis City Council members having a meeting and saying, oh, my goodness, the, the crime in Minneapolis is going through the roof. 
daylight carjackings, robberies, assaults, shootings, street racings, more homicides in the city of city of Minneapolis already this year than there were the entire part of last year. And so now the mayor and the common council are saying, well, well, what, what's going on? What's what has happened? Well, OK, least surprising story of the day. You, you talk about defunding the police. You portray the police as the enemy. You say we don't want these police out on the street. You bring the cell phones and you micromanage the police department with every citizen police contact they have. What do you think is going to happen? Well, the police are, are going to be less aggressive. The police are going to step back. You're going to turn the city into escape from New York. And that is precisely what is happening in Minneapolis. My guess is that's going to happen in other urban areas around the country, including Chicago and perhaps Milwaukee as well. You know, it's great. These politicians stand up and say, let's defund the police. Let's treat them as an occupying force. Okay, that that's great until, as is happening in Minneapolis, carjackings during the daytime, robberies, assaults, shootings, street racing, homicides, and all the other bad conduct go through the roof. And then the politicians say, well, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. When we come back, can't we count the ballots? And, yeah, like people are going to listen to this request. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, so Melissa, I'm going to give you a chance to either opt in or opt out of this. Okay. Okay. I'll so, opt in? No, 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 trust me. No, no, <laughs> no, don't, don't. <laughs> I jumped the gun a you, little you, bit. Well, no, I mean, because here's the deal. I'm going to give you... A ch- if, if you choose to play, and you don't have to, and there's all sorts of reasons why you might choose not to. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm laying this down. I'm going to give you a chance to answer the question before everybody else gets a chance to answer the question. Okay. And, and the question I'm going to be asking is, are they on drugs? Okay, so that's the, that's the question. It's going to be, mm. are they on <laughs> drugs? Now, the question that I have for you is, do, do you want to hear, like, the, the lead up and then be the first one? And I am going to expect you to, if you decide to play, I am going to expect you to answer that question, are they on drugs, before, you know, we let anybody else. But if you think, huh, this is a, this, this is Could cool be of a land. Well, it's, I'm, hmm. you know, it, but it, it's a landmine here because he's going to ask me to answer this. <laughs> and if I answer it honestly, I might irritate some people well, or not. And true. I don't want, so I mean, I, I'm, I'm, that's okay. I you, think I can, I'm a big girl. I think I can, uh, okay. I, I think I'll play. All right. You will play. All right. Now, now Groove's producing the show. I gave her her option on this, Uh-oh. right? I, I, right. All right. Okay. All right. All right. I gave you your out. All right. So, Melissa, you're going to get the first chance yes. at this, but but here here's the deal. The question is going to be, are they on drugs? Now, yesterday, the Big Ten announced that they were going to resume playing football. And my, I, I have no position on this one way or the other. I leave that to the, the sports people, you know, down the hall from us. But, I, I mean, my question at the time was, really, what has changed? I mean, if in early August they decided it was too dangerous to go play football, you couldn't do it safely, what, what, there's really nothing that's changed other than the fact that you've had outbreaks of COVID-19 on, on the campuses. So it seems to me this is, and again, I take no position on whether they play or not. It's just this is purely kind of a money crab sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so they're going to play football. Big Ten football is going to be back. And, of course, that's a big deal. Um, in Wisconsin, it's a big deal because I don't know that there's any more rabid foot- college football fans around than Badgers fans. It's a big deal when the Badgers play. 
Right? You agree with that, Melissa? I would completely agree with that. Okay, so they're going to play. All right? I now want to share with you a press release that I'm looking at on my computer screen. This is a statement that is being issued by the city of Madison. Statement about decision to hold Badger football games. All right? So I will share with you a portion of this. Public Health Madison in Dane County recommends that UW students and people in Dane County do not gather with others to watch the Badgers football games. The decision to hold the football season right now has wide-reaching impacts beyond athlete and student safety and will impact the health and safety of many people in Dane County. We strongly urge everyone to prioritize their health and well-being of all people in their decision-making process. Of course, it's disappointing that something as well-loved as gathering to watch Badger football games can't happen this year, says Janelle Heinrich, Director of Public Health Madison in Dane County. But the reality is it's not possible to have a traditional football season without substantially increasing COVID-19 transmission. We value people's health and lives over sports, and we hope that UW does as well. We've already seen a spike in the numbers, a lot of sick students right now, etc. Because, the statement continues, because so many people gather to celebrate and watch Badger games, it is likely that a Badger football season would spread COVID-19, not only to UW-Madison students, but also to people from all over Dane County. Uh, The increase in cases we are seeing is predominantly due to parties. Adding football parties into this mix is only going to make the situation worse, said the mayor of the city of Madison. Um, On top of the risk to Dane County, residents, football games hold a risk to student athletes, etc., etc. Public Health Madison in Dane County does not have authority over the UW-Madison campus, including Camp Randall Football Stadium, but it does have authority over gatherings outside the stadium to limit gatherings per the emergency order. We will continue to enforce public health, etc. So, in essence, what this statement says is they're going to play Big Ten football, but we don't want you to gather together to watch the parties. All right, Melissa Barkley, here is my question. Are they on drugs? <laughs> well, literal literal drugs, I would say no. Figuratively? Figuratively, I think there is obviously uh, a thought process that's different going on here. One says, you know, make sure you don't gather. And they're trusting that people do the right thing, right? They're trusting people that they won't tailgate that they won't gather to watch the game. Okay, is that is that is, is there any reasonable chance in this thing that you and I live in called the real world that people aren't going to gather together in groups, in watering holes, in basements, in public areas to watch the Badger football games? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we saw this last weekend, the Packers played sure. Vikings, right? And yeah. a lot of people are going out and enjoying watching the football a- game a- absolutely. wherever they go. So it's it's sort of in the same realm. It's college football, but I think um, people will be doing that. So your, your position, you, you believe that despite the fact that the mayor and the health department is asking people not to gather together to watch the Badger football games, that that is not, that is not going to be what happens. I believe there will be people that will gather to watch football games. Okay. Knowing knowing humans, ah. knowing fans. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My question is, I guess, more, more even more direct. Okay, the, the, the folks out in Madison, the public health people, the, and I, I'm not arguing about the merits. I understand what they're saying. But 
but in the real world, is there any, are they on drugs? <laughs> I mean, I mean, is there any realistic chance that, that people are going to say, hey, okay, it's the first Saturday, you've got, you know, the, this is the game Wisconsin's playing, whoever Wisconsin's gonna play, they're playing Iowa or whatever the game is gonna be, here that the kickoff is, is at 12 noon. Is there any reasonable chance that people are not going to be getting together in groups at watering holes, etc., to watch the Badger and cheer the Badgers on. I mean, or is this kind of like the the ordinance in Dane County that says if you go over to somebody's house, you're supposed to wear a mask when you're in their house, their private residence. Something that I understand, well-intentioned, but in this place called the real world, just nobody's doing. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand the motivation behind it, but, I mean, seriously, if you're going to watch the Badgers game, are, are you not going to watch it in public? Do you think that a large number of people will decide, hey, I'm, I'm not going to go out to that bar to watch it. I, I'm not going to have, you know, my friends over to sit and watch it. Is that a reasonable Request eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. They need to report to the nearest drug testing center immediately, <laughs> because because that is a very unrealistic uh, expectation. Instead, I think that they should try to come up with some sort of a plan to protect the people that are going to act responsibly. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, interesting. Right, th- thanks for calling. I mean, keep keep in mind that this is UW Madison right now, where they are having an outbreak of, of COVID nineteen, largely due to the fact that you you've got uh, like college kids who on a, on a typical Tuesday night can't say no to going down the street to to the kegger and, and participating in in that. Okay, so now we're going to say to people in general, you know, don't gather together to watch the football games. And and again, I'm. I, I understand where they're coming from. I, I get it from the public health perspective. But I'm wondering if anybody reads these things and says, you know, th- this is not a real-world approach to this. The truth of the matter is people are going to gather to watch the Packers games. People are going to go out to those watering holes, etc., and we can ask them not to do it. Maybe we should try to encourage them on more social distancing or, or whatever. But it, it's it's almost silly, in my opinion, to say, okay, don't don't watch these in public because nobody's going to be paying attention to that. I, I just, at least I don't think many people are going to be paying attention to that. 855-616-1620. We continue the conversation in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Tom in Sun Prairie. Tom, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jeff. I sensed this uh, information that just came out of that. It's not, not Committing that we not have tailgates. In fact, I just sent with SF or an email to Bill Parisi, our turf, executive. Yeah. Everything that comes out of his office, Jeff, is, is negative. It's restrictive. It's pointing figures. Can't do, can't do. And you know what? We, I'm in my, I'm in my mid 70s. We're badgers. He's in ticket holders, my wife and I. We have a group we've been tailgating with for years. And you know what, Jeff? We just planned this morning, after we found out the football was going to be played, okay, we're going to get together and do our same thing. We'll do it responsibly. Yep. We, you know, we, we're, we're adults. We don't have to be told this, but to come out with this and telling us, don't, don't even 
you know, get behind the game like you normally do. It, it drives me nuts. No, thank, thanks for the call, Tom. I'm sorry, your cell phone's breaking up a little. But, yeah, see, that, that that's it. If you want to be, and, and again, th- this shows the idiocy and the lack of common sense and the disconnect between the real world and, and some of the, the, the people, the, the, whether it's the public health experts or it's the politicians or, or whatever. It's this disconnect. Now, I, you, know, you said that you already planned your, your tailgate. And I get, my guess is there's a lot of people that are planning their parties. Now, if you want to come out and you want to be responsible and you want to be real world, maybe what you do is you put a statement saying out like this, saying, hey, we're excited about the return of Badger football. At the same time, we want to encourage everybody to be smart about this. If you're going to do your tailgates, for example, maintain your social distancing. Keep in mind, you know, we, we've got limits on the, the number of people that can be in these establishments. You know, be smart about this. You know, we want to encourage you to, you know, wear your masks or, wh- or whatever, whatever you want to do. But recognize there's this reality that's out there. And that reality is just like there were people. And I, I mean, I was watching... Okay, I watched the first half, got done playing of the Packers game last week. I was in, I was in a bar. Doors were open, wasn't as packed as it would normally be, and you know, people were trying to maintain their distance, but people wanted to get together to watch the Packers game. My guess is that is going to happen at noon on, uh, on Sunday as well. And I, I know that there were Packers parties all over. I was watching some of the TV reports on the 10 o'clock news on Sunday, and I saw that there were lots and lots of people who were gathering together. They were in various locations, like a lot of like bars or outside seating areas, and they were watching the Packers game. That is the reality of what is going to happen. So rather than saying, we don't want the people to gather together to watch the Packers game, why don't you do something constructive and real world? Why don't you say, okay, we know this is going to happen. And so we don't want to look silly by telling people don't do this because we know people are going to do this. Why don't you again, this is what we want to emphasize. Remember, if you're having your parties, you want to maintain your social distance. You know, remind we're, it's a reminder that there's going to be limits on the capacity that people can go into bars and stuff like that. Why don't you try to be real world constructive about this and recognize that, okay, this is a theme of the show a little bit later on, recognize that we have to figure out ways to live with COVID-19. And, and, you know, one of those is, yeah, we, we don't want a thousand people piling into a bar that, that has space for 850. Or you don't want a hundred people piling into a bar that has 75. And keep in mind, we've got limits on that. But we recognize that there's going to be people that invite other people over to their homes for these parties and stuff. So let's remind them of some of the things. And as far as like some of the silly stuff, and it is silly, wear a mask if you go to visit somebody else. Well, I, okay, I understand in theory that might sound great, but the truth of the matter is people aren't doing that. They're not following it. You have to know people weren't going to follow it. And that's not the reason why you have the spikes that are going on in, for example, Dane County. My only point is you've got to be reasonable. And there is a disconnect, I think, between some elected officials and some health officials, disconnect between what they say and what the reality is. Because you would have thought somebody would have looked at this and said, Okay, do we really want to send this out saying, okay, don't, don't watch the, the Badger football games with anybody? Which is essentially what this says. Maybe you should have been constructive and said, okay, we want to remind you on these different protocols. So when you watch the Badgers football games with large numbers of people or at least your friends, okay, this is what we want to remind you to try to do. But of course, that's not how you handle things in the People's Republic of Madison. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
so very glad to have you with us. Um, Officer Joseph Mensa, he is the Wauwatosa Police Department officer who has now been suspended for now a couple months with pay while various investigations of his conduct um, you know, move through the administrative process. He's now filed an appeal. Um, he's, he's challenging his suspension, arguing that it was w- without a legal basis. Now, I, I don't know how this is all going to turn out. He, he's being paid while he's suspended. So I, I, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see you know, what exactly his damages would be since he's being paid. But this does bring up the, the larger question. And it's one I, I keep asking the it has been since February that the shooting incident that started all this that happened. So now we're you know, we're now in September. So February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. It's now been seven months and the matter's been thoroughly investigated, and we're still awaiting decisions on on charges by the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office and any federal authorities that, that might be there. And this is going on and on and on. Meanwhile, the community gets more and more on edge. I don't know why John Chisholm... And some people, I, I have somebody that always texts me, say, it's not Chisholm, it's the feds. No, it, it's not. Chisholm is going to be the one that ultimately makes the call on whether or not there's a violation of, of state law. This is something that's been going on for seven plus months. It is not a complex, lengthy sort of thing. The witnesses have been interviewed. At some point in time, you've got to make the decision, and then you've got to let the cards, for the chips fall where they may. If the decision is to go ahead and, and charge Officer Menso with a crime, fine, you go ahead with that. If the decision and a lot of the police officers continue to maintain that the, the finding is and that there's there's no question that he behaved in an appropriate fashion, well, then you should come out with that decision and then move on, understanding that some people are going to be unhappy about that. But to just stall this investigation, to let it hang fire, doesn't do anybody any favors. It's not fair to the officer. It's not fair to the community. It's not fair to the parents, for example, of the young man who was shot, who are, quote unquote, looking for justice. You've got to you got to come down with the decision. You've got to be ready to respond if some people are unhappy with that decision. And then you've got to move on. And so now he's appealing his suspension in connection with another incident from a couple of years ago. It's just as a matter of fundamental fairness. You've you got to get this passed. And the longer this continues to hang over Wauwatosa, the darker that cloud becomes. Um, look, somebody's going to be unhappy with whatever the decision is. Make the decision. Live with the consequences, whatever they may be. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I have a serious question that I want to ask, and, and, and this is it. Why, why don't we count the ballots as they come in? And, and, I, and I ask that legitimately. Here, here's, here's the deal. Let me give you the background on this if you haven't heard the story. Under state law, clerks across the state are not allowed to begin the process of counting absentee ballots, all the ballots that your people, whether it's it's by mail that they've sent in or the results, the ballots from early in-person absentee voting, you know, whether, whether you did it in person or whether you sent it in, by law, 
clerks can't start putting those ballots into the voting machines until the polls open up at 7 a.m. on election day. Right, So the, the people who are working at the polls, what they're dealing with is they're dealing with the people who are showing up to vote on Election Day, and then they're dealing with all the ballots that have come in beforehand that have been stored. And so what you have to do is you have to have people, in addition to the folks that are managing everybody that's coming in in the age of the COVID-19, you also have to have then people who are taking all the absentee ballots and and opening up the envelopes and doing whatever they have to do and then feeding them into the machines. Now, back in 2018, we saw how this played out in in Milwaukee. And if if you can remember, that's that's the Evers-Walker election. And Walker is leading. Matter of fact, a lot of people went to bed that that election night thinking that Scott Walker had won because Scott Walker was ahead by, I don't know, 10, 12,000 votes, whatever it was. Well, what happened is people woke up and found that Walker had actually lost because the, the city of Milwaukee had thousands and thousands of ballots that they had not been able to count. And, and they weren't able to get around to counting them until well after midnight the, the next day, the next, that next day. And, and it changed results because the city of Milwaukee predictably, you know, broke heavily for Evers. So if people went to bed thinking that Walker had won by a couple thousand, they wake up and find that he's lost by whatever he lost by. But that was because votes in the city of Milwaukee did not get tabulated in what I would argue is a timely fashion. Now, it, I, and look, I, I don't think there was fraud involved in that. I mean, I think some people to this day think, well, it was kind of funny that all of a sudden these Milwaukee ballots came in. But the truth of the matter is the the, the clerks in Milwaukee – the problem was that they weren't able to start tabulate, counting the ballots, feeding them in the machines until Election Day. All right, that was 2018. What do we know about 2020? What do we know about November? Well, we know that more and more people are going to be voting absentee ballots, they're going to be voting early. And when I'm saying early, again, I'm, I'm counting the people that go and vote early early absentee, they go the week beforehand and cast their vote, or people who vote by mail. Matter of fact, the estimates are that maybe as many as as 70% of the people who vote in Milwaukee aren't going to vote on Election Day. They will have voted before Election Day. The estimates, and, and who knows, but the estimates are they think that there might be over a million ballots that are cast in Wisconsin, over a million that are cast in advance of the actual election day. So imagine what this is going to mean come election day. You're going to have the clerks that are already, you know, trying to struggle to find the poll workers, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with the people that are going to be coming in in person. On top of that, during the course of the day, they're now going to have to start figuring out, okay, we've got to make time to open up the ballots to do, again, whatever we have to do to make sure the ballot is legitimate, and then feed it into the machines. I ask this question sincerely. I understand why you, you had the law in place, and it might have made sense. Heck, it might have made sense four years ago. It probably definitely made sense 10 years ago or 20 years ago where the number of, of ballots that came in before Election Day were, were tiny because that's not how most people voted. You'd have the occasional person that might vote absentee, but most of the people showed up and voted on Election Day. So it was no big deal to take a small number of ballots and run them through the machine. 
Well, th- that's not the case anymore. And so I ask this legitimately. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I- I've talked to a number of clerk of courts across the state. To me, this isn't a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative, liberal sort of thing. To me, this is a, a common sense sort of thing. Why wouldn't we let the clerks begin to start the process of opening up those ballots and starting to feed them into the machines? Why do we wait until 7 a.m. on Election Day? Wouldn't it make more sense to, I don't know, allow them to do them either as they come in or start the weekend before or whatever? I understand that you'd probably have to put some safeguards in place, you know, some rules to make sure, again, there's a degree of ballot security, um, and you'd have to be some limits as to who it is that's that's feeding these things into the machine. But to just allow all these ballots to accumulate before saying, okay, we're we're just going to have to pile these up in some back room or wherever we, we are to, you know, require the ballots to just pile up without starting the process of processing them makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does anybody want to argue the other side? And I'm asking this legitimately. To me, this is just something that makes eminent sense for 2020 and and beyond. Uh, You know, if, if we don't change the laws, if we don't allow the process of counting to start, I don't know, in advance of Election Day, you're looking at, I think, given the fact that they're saying maybe more than 50% of the votes might you know, be, be cast in this election fashion, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't have numbers out of Wisconsin. It's possible this could be going on for days. And I do not legitimately understand the purpose behind it. Yeah, you, you at least let's start the process. Do I understand that you don't want like a, a running total? Gee, this is where the it votes b- before people start voting. Yeah, I, I understand that, but there's a difference between processing the votes and tabulating the votes. Is there any reason why you can't start tabulating the votes? I mean, processing the votes before election day. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Let, let me give you just a little practical example. I um in the, in the last the, the last election I my wife and I early in person voted the early absentee so we we go to city hall in the community where we live we go in we show our IDs we go through all that thing they they give my wife and I ballots we fill out the ballots all right then what we end up then what we're supposed to do is we fold them up we put them in an envelope, we seal them, and then we give them to the gal that was collecting them, and I sign it, and she signs it, and it goes into th- this box. And presumably what happens is election day rolls around, and, and then somebody else goes from the clerk's office, and they open that envelope up, and they feed it into the machine. Okay, ju- just one example. Why couldn't I have fed it into the machine when I went the Tuesday before the election? What what? What would, as a matter of fact, I would have felt better if I put that in the machine. That's one of the reasons I, I 
just don't think I could ever, absent some real need, see myself voting by mail. I like to see the thing go into the machine. What would have been wrong with having the machine? You could have it under the supervision instead of putting it in an envelope and then having somebody else open that envelope a week later. Wouldn't it have made more sense for me just to put that ballot into the machine? That That's one example. Okay, 855-616-1620. Scott on the south side. Scott, good afternoon. Um, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, my take on this topic is that is that I don't want them to start feeding ballots, absentee ballots, into the machines until Election Day. And the reason why I feel that way is because if you like just what you described, what are what are putting the ballots in, whatever when you absentee when you would drop it off, right? Well, both parties are going to want their their observers there, okay. right? Whatever. Well, you well you know well whatever you know well enough whatever that um that information is going to get leaked out in terms of in terms of what's going on and then the second the other oh, wait no but let me stop you there let me let me you, stop no but let me stop you there when you when you say the information is going to be leaked out what 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 do you mean that I, I mean i'm not saying you start the process of tabulating i mean but how is that any different than having an observer there on election day when when somebody's feeding it i'm, I'm not saying that you tabulate so you know who people have been voted for, but you you feed it into the machine, so the machine has that count certain, somewhere. Certain 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 areas, whatever both parties look at certain areas, whatever sure. for vote for for for, for um, um vote count for yeah. voter counts. So if so, what I'll just use Waukesha County, the GOP yeah. in Waukesha County, they expect to get eighty thousand votes out of Waukesha County. Right. So if they see whatever that. Our absentee numbers, whatever, a week before are only at 41,000, whatever, then that's going to give them some sort of signal, whatever, that they need to do something. And same thing with, like, Milwaukee County. They expect, the Democrats expect a certain number of votes out of Milwaukee County. Well, but but we already released the... But we already released the numbers. I mean, they, they know a week beforehand, you know, how many people have returned ballots. You, you don't know who it was, but I mean, they, they know, they, they will release the weekend before the election in the city of Milwaukee. They'll know and they make it public how many people have early voted. So it's, I mean, don't they have that information already? No. And, the, and just the other point I want to make on the same topic is that when you look at the flow on election day of how people flow in, you have a big rush between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. Yeah. Then you have a rush, whatever, between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Well, the rest of the day, there's not a whole lot going on. So that gives the election workers, the poll workers, enough time to throughout the day to, to run absentee ballots, whatever, through the machines. Well, Scott, thanks for calling. I think most of the clerk's offices would disagree. That, that might have been true. Five years ago, maybe 10, 20 years ago, certainly, when the number of absentee ballots weren't that great. But I, we're in a new era now. And seriously, I mean, they're, they're talking about over, uh, they, they're saying that over a million absentee ballots are going to be going out by uh, today, as a matter of fact. And, and, you know, people can still request more absentee ballots. And then there's going to be the early in-person voting. It's just a different world out there. I guess I just, I mean, the, what, what happens as a practical matter is the parties, that they know that they know who they, they know who's returned ballots. I mean, they they know. Hey, there's been this many 
They don't know how they don't know who people voted for. But, you know, you're going to see three days before the election, they're going to say this is how many people have voted early in the, the city of Milwaukee. They're, they're going to know those raw numbers. Again, I'm not arguing that you you release who people have voted for. I'm not suggesting that you say, OK, th- this is the turnout. There's been a thousand ballots cast and Biden has 700. And Trump has 300. But but you, you are going to know that there's been a thousand people that have voted. You're going to know that regardless. I'm just saying. And just again, as a, as a practical matter, I'd rather feed the ballot into the machine. So what you do, what's wrong with having a dedicated machine and what's wrong with the clerks if they want to do this? Now, maybe there's some smaller communities where this isn't a bit big an issue, but you know, you, you can have. You know, you you can have the parties can have poll watchers that, that are there if they choose to making sure that there's no shenanigans. I love that word shenanigans going on. But I guess to me, th- this just this just kind of makes sense recognizing, you know, where we are. And I guess I'm still not convinced what what the reason not to do this would be. Now, I have a text here saying, Jeff, the reason you don't do this is you can't trust the people who monitor it. Oh, OK, well. Well, if you if you can't trust the people, if you can't trust the the election process, if if you believe it is it is corrupt, then it doesn't make any difference. I, I mean, if if you think that we we can't trust the clerk's offices to process you know ballots in advance of election day, and you think something magically then is going to be different by we make these poll workers have to open up all the envelopes, I, I'm just I saw this play out. In, in Wisconsin for the last in the last governor's election, I saw it play out. Now maybe you think, okay, well it's it's no big deal. Who, what difference does it make if you know it's going to take three or four days before we know who won Wisconsin if it's a close election? What difference does that make? I would argue that that's not a good thing. My best evidence of that is think back to Bush Gore. Okay, the election in two thousand, where you know we were just. You know, you, you were watching, it was like wall-to-wall television about, okay, th- did this ballot count? Does that ballot count? What's the numbers? How many are still outstanding from this particular community? We have close elections, and I guess I just think the sooner you're able to get results, the, the better. I w- I'm all in favor of election security. Look, and, and I understand that there's some issues that people have with mail-in voting, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just simply processing the votes and recognizing that now the things have changed. I, I just think you process them earlier. Okay, let's talk to Joe in Appleton. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Joe. 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 Going once, going twice. Okay, lost Joe there. See, that's where my producer grew is staying in my ear. Joe's good. Take Joe. Take Joe. And then I hit the button to take Joe, and Joe is gone. See? That's another, it fits in the category of no good deed goes unpunished. He was saying, make sure you take Joe. Don't take the other cause. Take Joe. All right. Bottom line is, I, I, nothing's going to change for this election because the legislature would have to come back in session and they'd have to act and then the governor would have to sign off on this and the chance of having that done before before early November is slim to none, and my sense is that slim is on a bus out of town. Nevertheless, I, I think if you talk to most clerks, if you talk to clerks in Democrat strongholds, if you talk to clerks in Republican strongholds, they would tell you that allowing them to start the process of processing the ballots in advance of Election Day would be something that they would very much like to do, 
it would make their lives a lot easier on Election Day. And candidly, I'm all about that. Unless you can convince me that there's a real likelihood of fraud or abuse of the process, let them do it. Back with more in just a couple of minutes. By the way, um, in the next hour, we are going to talk a little bit about how do you live with COVID-19. There's a very provocative piece in today's Wall Street Journal. I've got a link to it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Back with more in just a few minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. During the break, somebody texted me their their explanation as to why you shouldn't be able, they shouldn't be able to count the ballots before election day, the idea that you should wait and just accumulate all these ballots. And this is what they wrote. So there's a good reason for this. You can, in fact, vote twice. If you change your mind at one of the offices, you must redo the entire ballot. The last or in-person ballot supersedes the earlier ballot. Um, no, that's, that, that's not, that's not right. Um, my understanding of this is if you, you can, you can request your absentee ballot. If you, if you fill out the ballot and send it back in, that ballot is counted. So once they get it, they receive it, they, they count it. You cannot request another ballot in person at a polling place. All right, so your absentee ballot is going to count. If you request an absentee ballot, but then then decide that you don't want to send it in, you want to vote in person, well, well then I think they can cancel that absentee ballot, although it makes a lot of extra work. But no, I, 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 you, can't, you can't say I, I voted absentee, the absentee ballot has been received, at least is my understanding, but I want you to cancel that one out after a filled out ballot has been received. At least I don't believe that's I don't believe that you can do that but but regardless if you got to change the law you got to change the law I mean once once you cast the vote then you change the law to say that's the vote that's cast and you know you live with that maybe that's a reason why you don't send them in earlier okay let us switch gears there is a very very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal today how to live with COVID not for it and you, I, I sent out a link to this if you follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But the bottom line of this, the, the, the author says, look, here's the reality. COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And instead of, while, while we want to encourage people to social distance and do all that stuff, instead of obsessing about whether or not somebody's going to get COVID, what we need to do is we need to concentrate on protecting the most vulnerable populations. Concentrate the efforts on, gee, the, the people who are over 60. Concentrate the efforts on the people who have compromised immune systems and underlying health issues. Comprom- concentrate on the people who are in the nursing homes and not obsess on the fact that, okay, maybe a couple kids at a grade school have, have gotten sick. Let's be smart. Let's put the resources into trying to keep the vulnerable population safe, but recognize that we're going to have COVID and there's nothing that we can really do about it. Now, here's the numbers as this plays out in in Wisconsin. Um, In Wisconsin, there's been 1.3 million COVID tests that have been administered since March. 92,000 people have tested positive. 
87%, that's 80,000, have recovered. All right, they've recovered. Um, 11.9% are still pending, which means it, they haven't, it's not been 30 days since they, they've tested positive. So they're what they call active. The number of deaths out of 92,700 positives, 1,228 people have died statewide. 518 of those, almost half, not not quite half, have come from Milwaukee County. So, I mean, th- those, those are what the numbers are. Right now, you've got 370 people who are currently hospitalized. That's That's been level for the longest time. There were more a couple months ago. There were fewer last week. But, but we're, we're hanging in in that 300 to 400 range, which is well below the hospital capacity. Now, the reason for that, I think, given... You know, if you look at the stories, what last week has been brutal. 1,400 people yesterday tested positive for COVID. The vast or at least a large chunk of those people that tested positive are people in the 18 to 24-year-old age range. It's younger people, and they are, and I understand that there, there can, I understand that a 19-year-old can get COVID and die. I get it. But that's not where the numbers are. That's the aberration. The, the people who really get sick and don't recover are, again, the people who are much more, more likely to have happen if somebody's over 60 and somebody has the underlying health conditions. So the, the author in the Wall Street Journal says, look, here, we, it's a fool's errand to try to obsess over stopping a, a 12-year-old from, from getting COVID. Because it's going to happen. They're going to interact. They're going to be in school. There, there's going to be a chance that they get this. But the good news is, for most 12-year-olds who get it, it's not going to be a problem. Now, if the 12-year-old gets it and goes and visits their grandmother in the nursing home and happens to pass it on, well, that's a different issue. Not for the 12-year-old necessarily, but it's an issue for, you know, grandmother. So the argument is, shouldn't we be putting our resources into trying to make sure the grandmother in the nursing home, that, that, that she's protected? The, the author says, hey, this idea of testing everybody, you know, testing 12 and 13 year olds, of quarantining the 12 and 13 year olds, that that doesn't make any sense. We don't have the resources to do it. And it's not an efficient use of resources. So the point is, hey, let, let's let's test people that have the symptoms as opposed to testing everybody. Let's concentrate our resources on, again, people who are in those most vulnerable areas, the the older people, the people with the underlying health conditions, and let's not worry necessarily that, again, you have some kids that are going to end up getting COVID because there's really, as a practical matter, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to stop that until we end up getting a vaccine. So the argument is, let's be smart about this. Let's figure out how to live with COVID, not for it. That's what the headline says, as opposed to let's try to shut down the entire country. Argument is some people are just going to get it, just like some people are going to get the flu. And I understand COVID-19 isn't the flu. But don't we want to concentrate our efforts on making sure the people who do get it are the people who are most likely to recover from this? Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And and by offering this, I mean, I, I'm not saying we don't encourage people to social distance. I'm, and this isn't a conversation about, about masks, but it's really a question of 
you know, what makes sense. Six months ago, the approach we took was let's try to shut down the country. And what ended up happening is you, you pretty much cratered large aspects of the economy. You have people who are out of work and jobs who have disappeared. You have businesses that have closed. You've created, you know, who, who knows how many other sort of psychological problems with those folks, issues that we're going to be dealing with for years to come, right? Given the fact that COVID is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, Doesn't it make sense to kind of change our approach and say, let's concentrate our resources on the people who are most vulnerable? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's not saying, gee, you know, we want everybody to get COVID, but isn't it a recognition that... I don't know. You're, you're going to have the 14 year olds. You're going to have the 18 year olds who are, in fact, going to get it. And, you know, should we be more concerned with the fact that they've gotten it? Or should we be concerned about we don't want them interacting with their 72 year old grandfather who, you know, might have some underlying health conditions? 855-616-1620. We discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, I think we we need to be smart when it comes to dealing with with COVID nineteen. And and last March, we we didn't know what we were dealing with, and so the reaction was let let's close down the world. And, and we closed down the world. And then we recognized, well, we have to let the world reopen. You know, we've talked about the whole idea of pandemic fatigue before. I think that there's only so much that people will, will put up with. And, you know, when we closed down the world, what ended up happening is we caused economic catastrophes. And again, some people would say, well, you know, what, what's more important, the economy or, or lives? And the answer is both are, are important. And, and that's why you need to be smart uh, about this. And this isn't a conversation about social distancing or wearing masks, but it's it's a question of where do we put our, our resources moving forward. And I've been looking at uh, ever since we reopened schools, and I said this when it was going to happen. You know, when you open reopen grade schools, I we would I hope all agree that virtual learning is an inferior alternative to in person learning. Uh, that that's just that's just the reality uh, of this. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's something that there's no alternative. But when we reopen these schools, one of the things I was saying is you have to have a protocol because inevitably people are going to get sick. I mean, that that people are going to be exposed to this. So the question becomes, gee, you get three third graders who end up testing positive. Well, well, what do you do? Do you panic? Now we're going to quarantine and we're going to shut the whole school down. Or do you simply say, okay, we're going to pull them out of class and we're going to say you don't come back for two weeks. And, and we're then, you know, you're, you're going to get sick. Chances are statistically, you're going to get better, and then you can come back in two weeks, just like we would quarantine you if you had the measles or something like that, and and we keep you know, moving on, recognizing that this is something that we're going to have to live with. Now, of course, you also concentrate the resources saying, all right, we, we don't want to see that that 14 year old come down with with covid. But, OK, he's going to have a little bit of he's going to have a runny nose. He's going to have a little bit of a cough and he might have a little bit of a fever. But, you know, odds are overwhelming that he's going to feel just fine in a few days and he's going to be able to go back to to school and presumably he'll have a little bit of of immunity. Isn't that the approach that we have to have, recognizing that that's the reality that's out there? And then what we want to do is make sure that, again, that 14-year-old with the fever doesn't go see 
doesn't go see his 80-year-old grandfather in the nursing home or, or whatever. Uh, here's a text, Jeff. Isn't it naive to think that once colleges started back, people would not start testing positive? Our world opened back up and wasn't shut down. Colleges made choices for kids to come back and should have been 100% aware that people would test positive. It's hospitalizations that have to be tracked in an effort to not shut down our country again. I mean, and I, I agree with that. That's one of the things that even though you've seen in Wisconsin, for example, but like I say, yesterday, 1,400 positive tests. I mean, it, it's been over a 1,000 for the last week or two. You're not seeing any sort of significant spike in hospitalizations. It's And we're not close to overwhelming the hospital system. And I think that's because, again, who it is that, that's getting sick. Concentrate the resources on protecting the most vulnerable and recognize that we're, we're going to have to figure out a way to live with COVID for the foreseeable future. Here's a text, Jeff. I, I love the, the article you texted out when I when I read it. It's per, what we need to do is protect those at risk and allow everyone else to live their lives responsibly. Our current approach is just unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at, you know, what they're planning to do at some of these colleges, which is to test everybody, whether you've shown symptoms or or not. Well, okay, if we've got limited tests, shouldn't we be concentrating our resources and testing people who are in the more vulnerable age categories who might have been exposed? I mean, it seems to me contact tracing is the way to go to try to work that out. Um, Jeff, I didn't realize that doctors and scientists determined that there aren't long-term health consequences for COVID patients. Please share this information with me. Okay, I understand the person's being snotty. Yes, it is possible that, you know, two years from now, we're going to figure out that, gee, if you have a 14-year-old that, that had a spell of COVID or you had a 20-year-old that had a spell of COVID, that's caused them permanent damage. It's possible that you might find something like that. But unless you want to tell everybody, go live in basements unless we want to shut down the world again, unless we want to shut down the economy, unless we want to unemploy millions and millions more people. You have to go with what the statistics are. You have to be smart and you have to recognize that we're going to have to figure out a way to live with COVID. And for the people that aren't comfortable with that, Fine, you know, go go just hang out in the basement. That that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But for everybody else who has to figure out a way to make a living and support their family and pay their mortgages and all, we have to figure out some sort of balance. In any event, I, I commend this this article. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's not going to change the mind of those who are the alarmists that that are out there, the people who don't think we can or should do anything until there's no COVID cases reported at all. Matter of fact, I saw a teacher's union representative, I think from New York or Chicago, saying, well, I don't think we should have kids back in school until there's no cases of COVID, which means there's not going to be any probably in-person school for, I don't know, the next five or 10 years. I don't know if we're ever going to be in a situation in this world where there's no cases of COVID. I'm not sure we're going to ever be able to completely eradicate it. Hopefully, sooner rather than later, we're going to be able to control it, which is the ultimate goal. But until we do that, we got to figure out how to live with it. This is Jeff Wagner.